Okay, if, if you open your Bibles with me then, to the book of Exodus, chapter 13. It's from verse 17 and all the way through to chapter 14. It's quite a, a lengthy passage, so I'm not going to read it beforehand. I'm just going to walk through it and comment as we go. We're going to look at the great escape this morning of the Israelites escaping from the slavery and bondage in Egypt, going through the Red Sea, which is, of course, a picture of salvation. Okay, so in verse 17 of Exodus chapter 13 here, we are told that it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that is, after Pharaoh had eventually allowed the Israelites to leave after God's judgment of the 10th plague there, it came to pass that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, although that way would have been the more direct route for them to go to the promised land of Canaan. God did not lead the Israelites that way, for this is why God did not lead them that way, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war, if they go that way, and return to Egypt. So what happens here is God perceives that if these Israelites go the more direct route to the promised land by the way of the Philistines, they would come up against a large military threat there. Unlikely because of all the suffering they had just undergone in, in the land of Egypt, they wouldn't have the stomach for this. And so the Lord perceives if they go that way, the more direct route, they're going to become discouraged when they see war and they'll change their mind about escaping and they'll go back to Egypt. We're told in the New Testament that these historical events here we're looking at recorded as lessons for us, the believer in Jesus. So what is the lesson here in this then? Well, first of all, it is God who is leading them. It is God who's guiding them here out of the slavery to the promised land of Canaan. And you see, in the same way, it is God who frees us from the slavery of sin and then leads us this life through our journey in this wilderness of this life to the promised land of glory. And you see, we see here that the Lord does not lead them a certain way. He does not lead them the most direct and the most quickest route because of the military threat here. And the people, they were already overburdened with suffering. And the Lord perceives that this will be more than the people can bear if they go that way. You see, the lesson here is as Psalm 103 verse 14 says. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You see, the teaching here is whatever you might go through as a believer, whatever trials, whatever suffering, God will never give you too much. 
Now, we can all take on too much, of course, and do things that God has not called us to do, and we can make life difficult for ourselves. But even then, God, if you do that, God will eventually get hold of you and leave you flat on your back in order to stop you doing that for your own good. But let me ask you, you know, how many times as a Christian are you tempted to think that if only you had gone this way about doing a certain thing in life, if only you'd have gone that more direct way that you know now it would have been so much easier and better. Now, listen, in saying all this, uh, let me make it clear. I'm not talking about the instances where you're living in defiance to God's word. In those cases when you knew what the instruction of God's word was, but you didn't take heed to it and you made a mess of your circumstances because of someone's own rebellion. Uh, I'm not talking about those types of things. In those instances, someone is refusing to be led by the Lord. But what I'm talking about is there are times, aren't there, when you're doing your best in order to serve the Lord. In making decisions in your life, in your family, you're living up to the light you have. You're doing what you know to be best at the time. But later you find out some clearer instruction or light on something. And so you think, if only I'd have known now, or, uh, if I only had known then what I know now, then I would have done things differently. If only I'd have known I could have gone that more direct route, I wouldn't have gone this long way around. And so you kid yourself into thinking, all them trials that I had in the wilderness, which we later see the Israelites has when you read on, you start to kid yourself. I would not have had all those if I'd have gone the more better and direct route. If only I knew then what I knew now. When in fact we see here that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today and forever, he sometimes prevents us from going the more direct way. Because he perceives that there would, would have been a trial there that would have been too much for us and would have crushed us. And so, that's why you didn't know that. I mean, think about this. All the trials the Israelites do go through, that the Lord had them go through, but he knew they couldn't go through this one because it would crush them, and it would be too much. And Again, you know, I'm talking about the times when you're, you're trying to faithfully follow the Lord and living up to the light you have. I'm not talking about when people just are living in plain defiance. But in, in verses 20 to 22 here, we are told the Lord led these Israelites by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them, lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So there is this cloud, this great cloud surrounding them, by day and this fire surrounding them by night. And notice the Lord leading them here is the Lord all in capitals. So this tells us this is the divine name of God, Yahweh. This is Jehovah God that is leading them in this cloud and this fire. We're told in the New Testament, aren't we, that 
In John's gospel, no one has seen God, God the Father, at any time. But the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So if no one has seen God the Father at any time, but it's the Son you see, then that tells us that all these manifestations of God in the Old Testament are Jesus Christ. So, just like when God appeared in the form of the burning bush to Moses, this is the Lord Jesus Christ who is leading them here in this cloud and through the wilderness. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me, Savior like a shepherd lead us. And it could be, I mean, think about this, as they're surrounded by this cloud here and this fire, it could be that they didn't even know at the time that God was taking them the long way around. Of course, they knew it later. But it could be. I mean, it's, I think it's pretty certain they did not know what God is doing behind the scenes. They did not know the dangers that God sees that we don't see. You see, when God takes us the long way around or a, a way we wouldn't have chosen, I mean, all we can do, isn't it, is speculate at best of what would have happened and what God protected us from. But you see, when God perceives a danger, he knows that if we had gone this way, that a certain thing would definitely have happened. And he knows what would have been too much for you. He knows exactly what is best for you. But you see, God is leading them here just like he's leading us in the best and most suitable way. And we can take great comfort in this. And then in verses 19, uh, the verses in between, I should say, in verse 19 here we read, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed before he died the children of Israel under a solemn oath saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Joseph, back in Genesis on his deathbed, he made his sons promise. He told them that one day you're going to come out of Egypt. And so take my bones with you. Why? Because he too, by faith, wanted to be part of this exodus. You see, he was trusting there in the promise of God's deliverance to come. You see, and that's the way all the saints in the Old Testament got saved. They were trusting by faith in the future exodus. They were trusting in the, the promise that God would send a redeemer, Jesus Christ. And I can imagine here, you know, this casket of the mummified, no doubt mummified since there was in Egypt, bones of Joseph. There would have been a, a great encouragement to the Israelites as they left because as they saw these bones, as they were carrying them, it was a promise that God would keep his promise to deliver them. Yeah. And, you know, the Lord gives us many vis visible signs, doesn't he? Visible reminders. Like the bread and the wine is one at the Lord's Supper. You know, every time we take the Lord's Supper, though, we're reminded in those symbols that through Christ's death, we're completely forgiven. We're reminded there that the covenant he's made for, with us, like the rainbow says, you know, 
You look at the deeds of the covenant, covenant that he's made with us in Jeremiah 31. I will remember your sins no more. I will never be angry with you. You know, we're reminded of that these, with these visible signs of the Lord's Supper. But, and then in verse 1 of chapter 14, the Lord tells Moses to tell the people to camp by the Red Sea at a certain point there. And this is all to make Pharaoh think, he says in verse 3, that they've lost the way. The people have just become perplexed. They are now entangled. And so in tr- the, the Lord has them camp at this point here because it makes it look like to Pharaoh that they've just gone put themselves into a dead end. And they are to do this, verse 4 says, because God is about to harden Pharaoh's heart to pursue them with his army. So what is basically happening, in, happening here is in God telling the Israelites to camp by the Red Sea in this cut-off place is the Lord is setting a trap for Pharaoh and his armies. It's an ambush, basically. And the way in which God hardened Pharaoh's hearts here, the text tells us uh, the way God hardens Pharaoh's hearts, it's not like, you know, he and all the Egyptians were sitting around thinking, oh, I'm so glad we, were, we let those Israelites go. But then God comes and forces them against their will or even changes their will. But rather what happens is God uses these circumstances. Yeah. And these people are bitter. They're sat at home thinking, why do we do that? And word gets, gets back to them how vulnerable, what a vulnerable position these Israelites are in. You see, this is what God uses to harden their hearts. Yeah. News gets back to them. They've been entangled. They've lost their way. They're sitting ducks, those Israelites. So let's take advantage of their vulnerability and attack them. You see, it's in setting up this trap here that God hardens Pharaoh and the Egyptians' hearts. But think of this from a spectator's view. I mean, it's, it's like God, the master scriptwriter... He makes it tougher here for them to escape with another twist. You know, this is like when you watch a film, an action movie, or most movies, I guess. And just as you think towards the end, everything is going right for the heroes. There's a twist and everything suddenly falls apart. Everything just seems to go wrong and and all of a sudden it looks impossible. Before, again, everything turns on its head and the hero gets victory. You know, sometimes as a family, uh, we, are, we kind of have a, a Monday night film evening, but we went through the Mission Impossible series. And every time they would have to do one of the seemingly impossible missions, my wife Zoe would say, oh, that's just ridiculous. At least get them to do something a bit more believable. Uh, that, that's not so impossible. I mean, that's ridiculous. And I say, well, that's the point. It's Mission Impossible. <laughs> But you see, what those guys did in the made-up script, no matter how unbelievable and ridiculous it is, it's nothing when compared to these events of the Exodus here. It's nothing to what these Israelites are about to go through in real life. I mean, 
These are penned in by the Red Sea here. Uh, And as we see in verse 5, when the king of Egypt heard heard about this, and the people heard, he and his servants regretted it, letting them go. And so he got an army together to go after them, his choice chariots and generals. And so the Israelites are now penned in hopelessly and being pursued by an elite force of soldiers, his choice chariots and his generals here, by such a a mighty army. And so as we see at the end of verse 10, they are now very afraid, as you would be. You see, from these people's point of view, they don't know the Red Seas, but I mean, we look at the story, don't we? We know what's going to happen, but they didn't know the Red Sea was about to part. From their point of view, it just looks hopeless. But then verse 10 continues to tell us, the people at first, they respond well in their hopelessness by crying out to the Lord for help. But unfortunately, their cries soon turn into complaints against God. We're told in verse 11, they were then murmuring. Then they said to Moses, because... Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? You know, that's a thought, isn't it? You know, the Lord is very reasonable, isn't it? You know, when we come into difficulty, we can ask why and and bring our laments to him. The Psalms are full of it. But the, the cross is aligned, doesn't it? You know, we should never... They should never turn into accusations. We should never, uh, our lament should never turn into coming to God with a sense of how dare you. Then they said to Moses, verse 11, uh, sorry, verse 12, they continue, is this not the word what we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. So basically they're saying to Moses here, we told you so in this. Now, these people, they'd seen God's power in the ten plagues of Egypt only not long before. They'd seen a lot of the power of God to deliver them. So, so why are many of them, why did they suddenly become faithless and start murmuring on this escape? I mean, just think, after all they've seen, they suddenly start murmuring and become faithless at this point. So why? Well, maybe some of them had a wrong perspective on the Christian life what a life following Christ looks like. Maybe they thought, well, after God has delivered us from this slavery and bondage and in Egypt there, maybe they thought they would never go through a trial again now. And so everything would be easy going from now on. And so at the first sign of trouble, they they want to go back to the slavery. A bit like Pliable in Pilgrim's Progress, who after initially fleeing the city, Once he gets to the swamp of despair, he says, I never bargained for this. Well, here is the remedy in those times, Christians. When you do feel afraid, when you feel helplessly penned in, 
The remedy, verse 13, continues. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still, meaning, stand still there, meaning don't retreat. Don't turn back. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. You see, there is comfort there that in moments of despair, all Christians can count on. Knowing that the Lord has not promised us a life free of trials, but what he has promised you is that you need not be afraid because the Lord will fight for you. He has promised that you need not retreat and you can stand firm because of that. So, if ever you, whenever you find yourself despairing and you feel like you're in the shoes of these Israelites here, you feel penned in and trapped with enemies coming against you, Maybe you're one who, you know, sometimes the, the cries to help to God turn into grumbling. But as verse 13 and 14 there, so you can remind yourself and preach to yourself in those moments. Be strengthened by his word that the Lord, you know, stand firm. Don't turn back, the Lord says, because he's going to fight for you. And verse 15, and the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Then the children of, tell the children of Israel, go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the mist of the sea. There is a, a time to pray and a time to do. In that verse, though, when the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Why do you pray to me? Tell the children of Israel, go forward. Charles Spurgeon said of that verse in a wonderful sermon, forward, forward, forward. He said, there is a time when to keep on praying about something becomes sinful. He said, far be it from, from me to ever say a word in disparagement that is speaking in a, a negative sense, far be it from me to ever say a word in disparagement of the holy, happy, heavenly exercise of prayer. But beloved, there are times when prayer is not enough, when prayer itself is out of season. When we have prayed over a matter to a certain degree, it then becomes sinful to tarry any longer. Our plain duty is to carry our desires into action. And having asked God's guidance and having received divine power from on high to go at once to our duty without any longer deliberation or delay. You see, what Spurgeon is saying there is, there are sometimes when people you know, they say, oh, well, I need to pray more about this. And I need to pray more about this. And they're always indecisive. And that's not always a mark of someone being more, more spiritual or someone with great faith. But it, it can also be a mark of someone with unwarranted fear just dithering after a while. And so in their, you know, using prayer as an excuse for not doing what they already know God wants them to do. You know, I mean, we see it a lot when, you know, people are 
are praying, should I go from this? Should I go from what is really a sinful situation? You know, I've been praying and asking the Lord, should I leave this immoral relationship? Or should I leave uh, the, the Catholic Church even? Or some other really work salvation when God has already told them what to do in those situations? And then in verses 17 and 18, and verses 23 and 24 also, we see God is sovereign over all their enemies. What a thought this is. On all the opposition forces that are trying to come against the Israelites, God is in complete control of the situation. So nothing can ultimately come defeat God's plan to save them through the Red Sea here. And it's the same with salvation. You know, there are, there are some who try to argue that believers can lose the salvation. Now, of course, there are sometimes people who have prayed a prayer, never been saved in the first place, and can fall away. But you have some who think that God is, is not sovereign over our biggest enemy that tries to bring us down, the enemy of sin. They think God can't stop that one. And so they picture God as this kind of little helpless, puny being who can do nothing when the enemy of sin attacks. And so they don't really believe that God is almighty, do they? That he is the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. I mean, when you put it like that, it's kind of blasphemous, really, when people think our sins can defeat the salvation of the Lord. But he has victory over all our enemies. So stand back, we're told here, and watch the salvation of the Lord. He is almighty. I mean, if, if our sins could take us away from the Lord then and somehow make us unsaved again, and, and we would have all gone a long time ago. You see, if it was down to us to keep us, I mean, that would be a work salvation, wouldn't it? But anyway, in, in verses 19 to 27 here, there is this glorious escape through the Red Sea when Moses, at God's command, he stretches out his hand and he parts the sea before them. And so there is this wall of sea on either side of them and the kind of dry road going through the water in order to escape from the Egyptians. Uh, this is the, a great miracle here. Uh, there have been some liberal skeptics trying to explain this away, saying things like, well, it's only a, a shallow sea of reeds here. It was only kind of ankle deep, which makes it even more of a miracle to drown Pharaoh's army and have chariots sink <laughs> in ankle deep water. But verses 22 and 23, so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then verse 24 and 25, we see the, look, the Lord, he then looks down and he sees the Egyptian army pursuing the Israelites. And so the Lord brings trouble here in, on the army of Egyptians. Verse 25, I love this. 
and he took off their chariot wheels. So they drove them with difficulty, or he, he clogged them up. Either way, the chariots are now like a sledge being pulled through on this rocky ground. And so the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for, for them against the Egyptians. So they, they turn around and flee now. And so, I mean, do you see this? I mean, it's glorious. As the Egyptian army is pursuing the Israelites here through the parted Red Sea, the Lord causes the wheels to come off the chariots. So they're just trying to, kind of being dragged along by the horses. And you see the Lord does this for our enemies coming against us, things that will take us down. Many times when we, how must, I mean, it happens sometimes when we see it, but many times we don't. When the Lord, someone, some difficult situation or difficult person is pursuing us and the Lord takes off the wheels of the chariots of the Christian's enemies. And he, he does this with sin and also. But, verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth whilst the Egyptians were fleeing into it. Uh, So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. So as the Israelites get out of the sea, the Egyptians are still in there. The Lord tells Moses once again to stretch out his hand and the sea closes in upon them and drowns them. So the truth we see here again is enemies that come against you in the Christian life, enemies of people, enemies of circumstance. We see that both God makes it difficult for our enemies and it would be far worse Whatever we go through, it would be far worse if God wasn't restraining whatever enemies somewhat. But we also see it's ultimately that God defeats our enemies. And verse 28 and 29, we see in these verses that God makes a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. Verse 28 Then the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. All the Egyptian soldiers perished there in the Red Sea. Not so much one of them remained. So, you know, when the enemies in the form of people come against us, this is reason to pity them, isn't it? Because there's a guarantee here that if, if they don't turn to Christ, then the same destruction only awaits them. But the children of Israel, on the other hand, in verse 29, had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt so that the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses there's a picture here of the judgment just as I mean they were dry 
going through. No harm will come to God's people at the judgment. Not one drop of water touched them here. For the, you see at the judgment, not one drop of God's wrath will, ch- will touch those who have come to trust in the Lord Jesus as their saviour. But for all those who refuse his salvation, for all those who are trying to save themselves or are indifferent to it, none will escape. We see in this picture in the Lord's distinction between Egypt, who every one of them, these soldiers perished, and the Lord's people Israel, every one of them was safe. You know, another film we watched as a family is The Great Escape. And it's, ba- it's actually based upon true stories from the Second World War. I saw a documentary on this of many escapes, but of course they've lumped them all into one film. And <laughs> but it, it, it's about various escapes of, you know, uh, to tr- of Allied soldiers trying to escape Nazi, a Nazi prisoner of war camp. Well, in that film... A few managed to escape. Most of them got captured. Many of them even shot dead. But you see in this great escape that is pictured here in salvation. You see, this is the greatest escape of all. What these events picture. When where sinful men can escape the judgment of God and the punishment of, the, uh, of God for their sins... All those who wait for the salvation of the Lord will escape with no harm whatsoever. Not one of them will perish. You see, this is the real great escape. Not one person who is truly trusting in Jesus Christ as their hope of eternal life will end up in hell. But no one who remains his enemy will escape. So, have you escaped? You haven't already then. What are you waiting for? Because just as they're told to go through today here. You know Christ offers this salvation this day. You see that that's the gospel isn't it? You know whoever you are. Whatever state you are in. Whatever you've done in the past. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. People just like you. And the way he saves is not by asking you to do some great thing. He doesn't ask you to part the Red Sea. The way he saves is by him doing the great great thing needed. By him suffering and dying in your place to pay your penalty. And so on judgment day, there's no penalty left to pay. Because Christ has already paid it in full. And you see this complete pardon, it's on offer to anyone who will just receive this good news and and believe this is for me. This applies to me. You can turn to Christ this day believing this applies to me that he died for me. And so I have no sins left to pay on judgment day. But one person might say, well, but I've been praying for God to save me and I've been praying and praying for God to save me. But as the Lord told Moses here, enough praying, now go forward and do. 
put your trust in Christ and what he has done to pardon you at the judgment. And you will be, too will be part of this great escape. You too will be able to know that no harm, not a drop of God's wrath will touch you at the judgment because he is, his son has already been judged and harmed in your place. You see, that's the gospel you must receive. There were little ones, old ones. And so it is with salvation. There's no age limit on this, is there? No certain age. They were told, go through the Red Sea. And if, you do, if you'll do that, you'll put your trust in Christ. You'll say, this applies to me. You can follow him and be pardoned. You can be sure that at God's judgment, you're free because of what Christ has done for you. So let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you for these great promises that just as not one drop of water touched the Israelites here, there is not one drop of God's wrath that will touch those who follow Jesus Christ, trusting in him that he has paid the pardon. Lord, we think how for those who refuse to come, though, how everyone perished, there's no exception there. So, Lord, we pray this would cause us to pity those in that position and, and pray for them to come knowing there is a salvation waiting if they too will trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.